Hello and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we're going to talk about the anatomy of a bestseller. Yes. Yes. Congratulations, James Clear. So we had James on a couple of episodes ago in support of his new book, Atomic Habits. And what do you know? He was, uh, <laughs> the book's doing great. He's been on, well, what was the bestseller list you mentioned? Uh, well, he's on Amazon's bestseller in his category of organizational behavior. But as you pointed out, he hit the overall bestseller list in the first week. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was in the top 10 of all books on Amazon in the first week, which uh, impressed me. Yeah, impressed me too. That's no small feat. Exactly. So we were talking about sort of the things that go into creating something like that. It's not magic. You don't just write a great book and publish it and you build it and, and they will come. They as, will come. That's from a movie that has dream in the title. So <laughs> that is a fantasy. Certainly you can write a great book and maybe over time it becomes uh, iconic. But if you want to launch onto the bestseller list, there's a whole a whole series of things that go into that. So we wanted to kind of break that down today because it pulls together a lot of the things that we talk about. Exactly. You've got a, a top six list, I think. I do. I do. <laughs> I always have a list. You know me. The first thing, and we've talked about this so much, is, you, is you've got to pick a topic, right? A big idea that entrances you, right? Because you have to be really interested and you want to be able to spend years digging into that topic. And then you want to focus on how you can serve a specific slice of your marketplace. So it's kind of like, what's your sweet spot? What's your big idea that you just can't let go of? Writing a book is a major undertaking. It's like a marathon. I always say, it seems like a great idea until you're about halfway through and then you're like, oh, why did I do this? I just want to crawl into a hole. It's the worst. I mean, I mean, it's great. I think everybody should write a book, but I've written like five and every single time there's a point where you are pulled forward through inertia alone. It really helps if you believe that it, that it matters. You know, if you're just writing a book because you think it would be a good idea or be good for you or something like that, I, I can't imagine that pulling me through the dark weeks, you know, waking up at 4 a.m. to setting an alarm to wake up at 4 a.m. to get out of bed and type. You have to have fuel. Right. And a great thing for that, a great fuel for that to drive you through those periods is to really care that this message needs to reach people and, and a book is a good format to do that. And I, I just think it makes all the difference in the world. I mean, it's not just about your topic. It's about who you're serving. And when you start to think about the knowledge that you have and the way that you apply it can help people. It's almost like it's your duty to share your, we talked about this too. It's your duty to share your wisdom with them. It doesn't have to be in the form of the book. That That's what we're going to talk about today. But there really is a formula for an authority to create a book that becomes a bestseller. Yep, absolutely. What's number two? Well, number two is to develop a distinct point of view. I think that's a, maybe not a marathon, maybe it's a half marathon, but because you start out with this idea and then you start to write about it and to think about it and to talk about it and it morphs. And so you certainly, listener, you, you have this platform and so you can have some planks in that platform, some core beliefs, but then you fill them in. And to me, that's what makes the difference because that voice, that view 
allows you to say yes to things and no to things. It allows you to say things a certain way and that that will repel some people and it will attract the right people. And that's part of building your tribe and your expertise and authority. Mm, absolutely. I mean, we've had Jill Conrath on the show. She's written a bunch of really good sales books, but you know, how many sales books are there out there? Millions probably. I mean, maybe not millions. Seems like it. It feels yeah, like it. It feels like millions. And there's some pretty, pretty straightforward core principles. I think even if you say, okay, there are maybe four different kinds of salespeople and different kinds of books for all those, but still Jill is different than say Jim camp, who has a completely different approach to sales and versus someone like Seth Godin. Like everybody's got their own brand of how they approach this thing or how they present it to the audience or how they communicate maybe the same ideas or basic underlying ideas in a way that resonates with their audience differently than it would resonate with someone else's audience. I called it a point of view, but it's also your voice. It's what you believe and then how you talk about it. Somebody might have pretty close to the same worldview, but one talks about it in this very kumbaya, we're all in this together. And another one is very expert a brain surgeon voice doesn't care who they tick off. I mean, it's a very different voice and that, and those voices will appeal to different people. Yeah. That's like with me, it's this sort of tough love thing. It's like, like the Kumbaya thing. It just doesn't, I cannot read that stuff. I just, I just can't, it just doesn't <laughs> click with me. I just don't, it doesn't resonate with me. It doesn't matter how right it might be. I can't hear it. It's the wrong, wrong frequency for me. But then take it another uh, notch out like an Alan Weiss, who is very in your face, so grouchy, <laughs> judging by social media. I don't know him personally, but so he's got a very specific voice and he's not afraid to turn people off. And so the people that love him, love him. And the people that don't like him really don't like him. But that's a strong brand. It's a personality. It comes right through. Very authentic. Yeah. Yeah. So it's that point of view and it's it's your voice. It's the combination of those things. And and to me, that's what's kind of exciting. Like instead of getting discouraged, if you want to write a sales book at the gazillion sales books out there, you get excited about your point of view, your audience and what you have to say. Yep. Totally agree. Cool. All right. And number three. Number three. <laughs> you sounded like a radio DJ. <laughs> um, that was supposed to be the count from Sesame Street. Oh, sorry. I have to I'll work on it. I'll try it on number four. <laughs> okay. So number three is you're delivering content and it could be blog posts, articles, podcasts, videos that sincerely serves your ideal audience, your sweet spot. So it's all about the content because and that's really how you're going to develop your point of view over time. Delivering the content in advance or there's so many advantages to that. It's not just that for me, it's not just that you are working out your ideas and figuring out how to best communicate them to your audience, because that's a big piece of it. But getting the feedback and building the you're building this sort of grassroots movement almost that when the book is available, it's sort of launched into this fertile ground and not just to like, hey, universe, I wrote a book. Want to buy it? It's like a continuation. It's the maybe the, I don't want to say tip of the iceberg, but it's just one piece of the overall body of work. And it's not, it's not just existing in a vacuum floating around. The idea of 
of sharing a lot of content, share, 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 publish till it hurts, leading up to, I mean, always, never mind leading up to a book, just always. If you deal in ideas, then you need to be writing and speaking all the time, whether it's into a mic or on stage or writing in a computer or an email list or a blog post or on Twitter, whatever. You need to be working on your ideas, figuring out, first of all, what they are, stumbling across big insights, and then figuring out how to best communicate those to the different sorts of people that make up your audience in a way that's going to click with them. At the same time, it's practice. It's research and development, it's audience building, it's trust building. It does all of those things. If there was one thing that I think everybody who's thinking about writing a book or building an authority business, like if there was a deal breaker, you know, someone came to me and said, hey, I want to be, I want to get this idea in the world, but I don't really want to write about it very much. I just want to, <laughs> I just want to research it and like drop a big research paper on the universe in three years. I'd be like, I don't know. Go teach at university would be my answer. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. I think think doing that work in public has so many benefits that are not the obvious ones, perhaps, but um, really, really a lot of benefits. Well, let's take James Clare as an example, because, you know, he's he's been on the show. He's right in front of us right now with with his Atomic Habits book. He talked on on the show about how he writes articles and they're very deeply researched. These are not like toss off a blog post kind of pieces. And he just would consistently write them. And the thing I loved is that he was just so honest about it. He said, I never know which ones are going to hit and which ones are just not going to resonate. And he's been surprised on, on both sides of that. But he kept doing them. So even when one was a relative flop, he he didn't stop. He didn't say, gee, I guess I better not write anymore. He would do another one. And he kept honing his voice, which I believe is what part of what helped him be able to write the book. He said he would spend up to 20 hours writing a single article and he was publishing two per week for a while there. He, he's done two per week for a while. I think he went down to one per week and he might be back to two. I'm not sure. They're deeply researched articles, which is the way he decided to do it. I certainly don't do that. It takes me. His voice. Yeah. If you're on his list. I don't want to say you feel like he's talking to you, but you really, it really comes across like he's really good at first of all, getting his ideas across, but his word choice and his the rhythm to his writing, his personality comes through. He's a good writer. Yeah, he's really good. And I wonder yeah. why, because he writes a lot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, it takes practice. No trick to it. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you use a pencil or a pen, you got to write all the time. Just like write a lot. If you want to be a good writer and have a popular, uh, a successful book, or at least a good book, you just write a lot and you'll be a better writer. Step one. Step one, <laughs> write a lot. Yeah. Well, but I also, I, I enjoy this because James has a very particular brand and style. Now yours in some ways is the opposite. You write short daily posts, right? They're all around a central theme. So that's consistent, but it's a great example of how you can be successful at all these points on the spectrum. It's not like there's one way to success. It's, there's certainly a formula, but the formula has to have your essence in it, your knowledge, your passion, your voice, your audience, right? It's all those things that I just, I love that we can have so many different examples of authorities who are successful. Yeah, I wrote an email recently about two marketers who couldn't be more polar opposite, Seth Godin and Gary Vaynerchuk. They're both successful marketers, thought leaders. And could you pick two different, more different people? 
No. <laughs> if they're farther down a path that you find yourself on, copying like their mannerisms or the sneakers or the glasses or the shaved head, like that's not the stuff to copy. That's them. That's like, that's their look. That's their brand. That's their feel. I've never met either one of them, but I, it seems totally authentic. It's just them. You feel like if you met them, they'd be the same way. You don't want to copy that. You don't want to copy this sort of surface level decorations. You want to copy the courage that they have to show up and put stuff in the world every single day and take the, the slings and arrows that come with that and just, but just keep going. You fall flat, pick yourself up, keep going, keep going, keep going. That's the thing to copy if you're going to copy something. Yeah. Yeah. It always amazes me when people love to have these tools conversation with people like that. And they go, oh, geez, Seth or Gary, what do you use for this? How do you track your time? How do you do this? Those aren't the things you want to copy either. Um, it's interesting to hear about that, but it's not it's not like if you copy their processes that you're going to be successful the way that they are. Right. All right. Number four. Oh, Number wait, wait, four. wait. I, <laughs> yeah. Oh, you stepped on my count. I know. I realized it after. I, uh, sorry about that. I've got to do better if I'm going to be the straight man. I'll try, <laughs> I'll tr I'll try again on number five. Okay. Number, okay. number four. So four is, you know, simple and sublime, right? It's build your email list. This is the most important thing. If, if you look at, at selling books, you, you will sell more books through your email list than any other place, unless perhaps you, you get an article about you in the New York Times. Your email list is, is key. I just think a lot of experts get either complacent or they just get annoyed with the process of building an email list. It, it isn't a slam dunk. You have to work at it every day and give content and make sure that on your website, there are lots of places to sign up and that it's compelling. But that email list is everything. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And in, in fact, Tim Grawl, who's someone we should probably have on the show at some point, he helps authors have a huge launch and he's got amazing street cred. I, at one point he had something like six clients on the New York Times bestseller list at the same time. He knows how to do it. I could be wrong about this, but I believe that his number one tactic is build your email list and start building it a year before you're planning to launch. So we just said like tactics don't matter, but this one, if you're going to copy a tactic, copy building the email list, going back to delivering content, developing a, a point of view, honing your big idea. It gives you a place that's, it gives you like a safe place to work out your ideas. It builds, it's, it's great. It does all of the things that you need. It's a great medium for creating a grassroots following and an audience. And I believe, I've said it before, but I believe it's because of the distinct nature of email that it can be broadcast, but also one-to-one. -one. So I can send out a giant broadcast to thousands of people and then individuals can privately reply without making a comment on like a public comment on like a Facebook thread or a blog post or putting themselves out there in that way. And the funny thing about that is they share very personal things when they hit reply, which gives me great insight into where my ideas aren't connecting, like where I'm missing the mark. It doesn't matter if I know I'm right, air quotes, I still need to get it across. I suppose I was surprised at one time. I'm no longer surprised uh, when someone replies and they didn't understand what I meant and they've got a completely great reason for not understanding. So like they'll say, oh, well, 
that doesn't make sense to me because blah, 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 blah. And they'll explain something from their world or their worldview or their culture, because I have a lot of people from outside the United States, that the word just means something different there. It was a word choice that is vague somewhere else, or some. it can be something as simple as that. Or a lawyer or a photographer emails me about something, replies to something, and with my background being in software development, never would have occurred to me. The word retainer is a great one. Every different industry uses the word retainer differently. And if I'm going to talk about that, I know now that I have to be really careful. I almost have to define the term every time I use it. And that comes from having interactions with people on an email list. I don't think that could have happened in blog post comments. I don't think it would have happened on Twitter. It's just too much work for people to, I don't know, maybe it could have, but... Well, it depends how how private the topic is, because a lot of us, you know, we don't want to air our dirty laundry in public. It takes courage to admit that you're not working at perfection. What I love about about the email is, is that same thing. I love the intimacy that it gives me, I feel like it gives my audience that as well, but it gives me with them. So it's like we have this little chamber where we can speak back and forth. And so it's sometimes like I got an email, I don't know, a few weeks ago from someone who's been on my list since 2011 and never writes, never comments, nothing. And just out of the blue said, you know, this was such a great article. I just wanted to let you know I appreciate you and your emails. And like that, that fueled me for like a week, (laughs) just just that one, because usually it's that there's something that is intriguing about an idea. And then we might have a little back and forth about an idea, or they might say, you know, I just encountered that and here's what it looked like for me. And I've also get blog ideas from people saying, I'd really like to hear more about X. And so you feel like you have small R relationships with those people in a way that you wouldn't any other way because they, they're not going to pick up the phone and call you. It doesn't feel quite right. They're not probably going to go out in social media. Email has that essence of a conversation with someone that, that you don't know well, but that you're communicating with. It's perfect. It's ideal. I think it ticks all the boxes in just the right way for building an audience. And that's if you're trying to build your authority, you don't do it by yourself. (laughs) There needs to be, there needs to be someone who's listening, someone who's paying attention. It's just great. One thought about this email list for those who are kind of just getting started on it or who've been in business for a long time, but haven't really used email, an email list so much is to kind of think of it as a, as this living, breathing thing, because it is, it's your connection to your audience. And so when I see somebody who does an email and then you get one that says, Oh, I know you haven't heard from me for a while. And then they launch into something else. I feel like the connection, if, if not, if it's not broken, it at least gets bent. Yeah. And then two right? days later they launch a product that they want you to buy. It's like, Oh yeah, I forgot to keep my list warm. Yeah, it's the list is about giving and you will receive. We've talked about this before in our Kumbaya moments. You will receive (laughs) eventually, but the list is about giving and you can ask for things on on that list, but it's got to be a lot more giving to the ask. That's what it's about. I see it as a community and and you got to operate in that way if you want it to work. Otherwise, at best, it would be super transactional, uh, but more likely you know, you'll have a big list with no engagement, which is like, what's the point? 
like for me, it's all about the engagement. Like I periodically go through and if there's like a bunch of dead wood, like I deleted like 1500 subscribers earlier this year because they just weren't opening emails. And I was like, okay, if, if you don't want to open the emails, I don't want you on my list. I got to pay for those spots and it affects my deliverability. It affects the other people who are opening them, getting them. But to me, I'd rather have a smaller, more engaged list than people who are either just sending it to arc straight to archive and maybe someday they'll binge read it or something like, I don't know. That's, that's <laughs> like, if I wanted that, I would just blog. Yeah. But that's not what I want. I want a real time conversation. I want people replying and interacting. I ask questions all the time. I try to get feedback from people. I ask people to submit ideas and, and their own experiences. And then I feed it back into the list and I am very careful to try to make the, make there be a, um, like an expectation, a kind of a culture, like the sorts of thing. There's like a group, a set of things that you can expect when you open up one of my emails. It's going to be expected. It's going to feel a particular way. Uh, nothing like absolutely nothing like James Clear's emails, but you can't, it is predictable. If you open it, you, you know what to expect before you open it. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious, Jonathan, when you deleted the 1500, did anybody come back to you and say, oh, I missed the emails or was it just oh yeah, mm-hmm. true Deadwood? No, no, no. It was so, I mean, just to get super tactical. I emailed that segment of people repeatedly for like a week action required. You're going to be removed from the list and email software is not perfect. So the emails were like drip tells me that you're not opening the emails. So I'm going to remove you if you don't, you know, just reply to this email and you'll automatically be stay on the list. That's all you have to do. And 1500 people didn't. And I removed them. (laughs) Yes. How come you stopped sending out emails? Okay. Gotcha. I was polite about it. I didn't want to chop off a bunch of people who actually were reading them, but to have like images turned off or something, it wasn't detecting them. So I, I gave some warning and then uh, chopped them off. Well, that's why I asked, because I just find that it doesn't matter which email sender you use, but it just seems like they don't always accurately represent the opens. seems like the clicks they do, but not the opens. I know tons of people don't do this. There's arguments against it. Uh, move them to a lower frequency list. There's a million techniques, but it's just the, I want the engagement. I don't want to be looking at the numbers and like fooling myself. I don't know. It's, it's sort of a vanity thing, I guess, but cause it doesn't change the number of people who do engage, but you know, there's some effects that, that either they're psychological or deliverability or all those things that that's just the way I do it. And that's the way I do it. <laughs> Well, it's sort of the opposite of vanity, really, because vanity would say, I want as many in there as I can get. I don't care if they open it. I want to be able to say I have a list of 100,000 or 300,000. But it just goes to the point that everybody does this a little bit differently, which is why you can have a bestseller, particularly in your category, if you're doing all these things in a way that builds the audience that wants to hear your message your way. Yes. Number five. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Maybe I'll put a thunder effect in there after. (laughs) So number five is, is you have this ideal audience. So now you want to write the book that they want, that they need in your voice. And I, I use want and need very carefully because sometimes we think our audience needs something, but they don't think they do. So it's you're you're letting your audience tell you what they need 
And so you're writing the book that, that they want, but in your voice, your way. Yes. I talk about this a lot where you kind of have to meet people where they are. Changing somebody's behavior is really hard. Changing your own behavior is really hard. And someone who thinks about, let's say in my case, pricing all day long, every day, is going to recognize root cause problems that most people do not recognize. What people do recognize is the symptom. So they'll recognize a particular pain that they're experiencing, like, oh, I have a headache. They don't necessarily know what the underlying cause is. So they're going to look for cures for a headache, not like your glasses prescription is wrong or whatever it is. I think it's really important to meet people at the pain that they're experiencing, not this abstract underlying big problem. I do an example of schools being underfunded. So I had a student who was like, oh, we were talking about talking about this exercise. And it was like, schools being underfunded is an expensive problem. It's a really big problem. And I'm like, okay, for who? And they're like, well, for everybody. And I'm like, yeah, but specifically who? That is an underlying root cause, call it a disease. And different people who are affected by that disease are going to have different types of symptoms. They're going to have different kinds of pains. So if you're the administrator of a regional school system versus a parent of a kid who's in the school, the school being underfunded or the school system being underfunded is going to express itself in different ways in each of your lives. And attracting or connecting with the person who you want to help and connect and doing helping the parent is going to be very different than helping the superintendent of schools with the exact same root cause problem. You need to approach them in a way where you come to them with a pain that they recognize. So, you know, it's like, it's like going to a doctor and they say, well, tell me where it hurts. And they do this diagnosis and it's like, well, if I go like this with my arm that, you know, that hurts. And, oh, okay, well, and they ask you all these questions. You've got a particular pain. There might be an underlying bigger cause, like your posture's messed up, but they're not going to come at you with that right out of the gate. You need to kind of meet people where their awareness is. That's the word I'm struggling to find. They're aware of something. With James, he's got a whole list of things that are super surface level awareness. And then he's like, okay, he goes in. That's like, that's his door, his entry point in. With me, it's like, People are like, they've got this feast famine cycle. Some months they're, they're slammed, other months they're broke. Cause that's the pain that people feel. And it, it's brutal. It's very painful. I don't, I don't come to people and be like, oh, you need to immediately stop hourly billing and start value pricing just because it's the right thing to do. It's mm. like, <laughs> right. No one's going to, yeah. that's not going to connect that's with people. Work. This is sort of a, me soapboxing about writing the book in a way that people will recognize that it's the solution or a potential solution to a pain that they're actually experiencing. Even if you go beyond alleviating the symptoms and going all the way to the root cause and saying, okay, now you, you know, whatever, now you understand that this is the cause of this pain. Now here's what you can do to, to fix it. You can either do these little things to just make the pain a little less without fixing the root cause, or you can go nuts and root out the underlying problem. I think that's also why it's so important to define your audience, because, you know, in your example, you're, you're going to speak to a parent very differently than a school administrator. Hot buttons are different. The way they think is different. Uh, the way they act is probably different. It comes back to it's not just your expertise. 
You have to meet them where they are, but you also need to be very clear on who you're talking to. Because if you try to reach both parents and school administrators in the same voice, I think that would be a challenge. No, it's not going to work. And and here's a and we're talking about books right now, but this is even more pronounced when you're talking about pricing something because they have different budgets too. So if you want to sell something to the superintendent of schools, who's got municipal funding and you're going to address the same root cause problem that you would, if you were trying to go through a parent, the parent's not going to have a budget to solve the problem in the way that you want to solve it. If it's a superintendent level solution, you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? So like, the problem that I see all the time, and this is, I think, relevant to this conversation, even about writing a book, is that the authority or the expert or the consultant or you, dear listener, sees the problem that the teacher or the parent is having. And they and they empathize with that person who's sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place and they can't get crayons and paper. And then they take that pain and they bring that pain to the superintendent and say, look, we have to do something about this pain. Well, the superintendent doesn't have that pain. They might in the abstract be like, yeah, that's bad, but that's, they're not suffering from that. They're going to be suffering from it in a different way. So if you want to air quotes, sell a solution, whether that means exchange money for, or to get the idea across to sell a cultural change, then you need to meet them where they are. What's the pain the superintendent is having? They can't keep teachers and the government's breathing down their neck. They're going to lose their funding because they can't keep teachers. And that means their test scores are going down. That's a, probably a lot more clear and present danger to a superintendent who wants to keep their job than it would be to a parent. And the parent's pains are not the same pains as the superintendent. So what, I'm going to air quotes sell. If you want to sell your idea, whether that, you know, like I said, whether that means them writing a check or them deciding to join your email list, even though it's the same root cause problem, you have to talk about it differently depending on who the listener is. Even in that example, parents, it's not just one homogeneous group. And you look at income level, parents in one neighborhood in a school district might feel differently than parents in another. There's all sorts of ways to slice and dice it, which goes back to you've got to know your audience because you can't, you can't serve them if you don't understand them. Yes, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) I love when violently agreeing. Yes. (laughs) All right. You want to try the Count Dracula number six. Go ahead. No, <laughs> oh, no I, I was going to mute it. Oh, I don't know. No. Well, let's see. I, see, I don't watch Sesame Street, so what? I don't have a four-year-old. <laughs> I don't think. I don't even know Sesame Street's still on. This is vintage me from 1975, probably. Right, number six. Yes. <laughs> Very good. Okay. In our defense, we're close to Halloween people. Exactly, right? (laughs) So number six is repeat. There you go. I have some clients that have authored a number of different books, and and three of them are all on the same theme. They take different looks and deeper looks with each subsequent book, but then their their latest two books are, are really on different topics. They touch briefly on their original premise, but... They went back to step one, pick that big idea that entrances you. And so they took everything that they developed over the course of three books in, I'm thinking about eight years, if I'm remembering rightly. And they took all that and said, all right, where do we take this next? And they pushed it into a new territory 
continued with their existing audience, built out this new idea and, and wrote their, their next book. Yep. I'm, I'm just starting to find that on my, because of feedback from my mailing list, I'm starting to see a couple of little sprouts coming out of the dirt of potential next big ideas. Like I feel like right now I have one drum that I beat and it's the ditching hourly drum. It's like, this is the root cause of all of the problems you face in your service business, like full stop. But there are some things that continually come up that are like I call planets in my solar system. The sun in the middle is ditching hourly. It's like how to price your work instead of bill for your time. That's my central theme. And there are all these planets rotating around it. And they only make sense because they have this central hub, the central thing that, that through which everything is viewed. But a couple of them are starting to a couple of them are starting to like go supernova. Like <laughs> some of them are like, oh, <laughs> this is actually, this could be a focus also. Or certainly it could be a discrete book about a particular thing that still makes sense in the whole body of work because of the genesis of the idea and that they are related, but is clearly not the same thing and would be more of a, like there's one I'm thinking about, like, like measuring intangibles. There are other books on this. The Doug Hubbard book blew my mind and really opened my my eyes to the idea of measuring intangibles or measuring something without quantifying it, which is a mind bender. And that's a subset of pricing in a way, or you ha- it has to exist for you to do value pricing because you have to measure the intangibles of value. It's value is almost always intangible. So uh, that's really attracting my attention as something to focus on and maybe do a, a real real in-depth treatment of that. Maybe it's a book, maybe it's a course. I don't know. It's funny that you say that because the, all of the, all of these things tie together and it creates this cycle where you're like, okay, you get this feedback loop and then it sort of culminates perhaps, you know, you could look at it that culminating in a book. And then while that's like in tandem at the same time, these other ideas are sort of like bubbling up if you're looking for them. And certain ones seem to get a lot of questions or, you know, the list really responds to them and they're like, Oh, what, wait a second, what's that? Or like you finally explain it and like all these light bulbs go on and they all email you and you're like, huh, okay. A lot of people, a lot of people need this or a lot of people see this as valuable. It's very organic. It's also what lights you up because if if you put this idea out there and people get excited about it, but you're like, Oh God, what a slog that would be to write more about that. (laughs) I mean, then it dies and it should die because, you know, it's not capturing you enough to, to dedicate your time to it. Right. The wash, rinse, repeat cycle is, I mean, all of this stuff ties together. I know years ago I would have thought like you sit down, you write a book, you look for a publisher, an agent, and like never talk to anybody. You just in your basement writing this thing. And I know, I know people who have done that. And guess what happens? That's where you hear the story of like, oh, I wrote this book and I shopped it around for 26 months and I've got a inch thick pile of the most polite rejection letters ever. And guess why? (laughs) Because you you wrote it in a vacuum. And and I'm not saying you can't create a masterpiece in a vacuum. I mean, I, I suppose it's possible, but why risk it? Well, fiction. 
I mean, fiction, because fiction, you typically have to have the thing written before you can have somebody really read it. Yeah, I suppose. But I mean, for our stuff. Yeah. I mean, I can think of nonfiction that that was just written in a bubble by an academic and it just was a masterpiece right out of the gate. Like Gertel Escher Bach, The Eternal Golden Braid is like the most perfect book ever written. And it's like amazing. This is years and years and years ago. I would be shocked. I don't know this, but uh, I think the guy's name is Douglas Hofstetter. I don't get the sense that he had an audience. Maybe he was a professor and had students or something, but I got the impression that, and I believe I read this, I'll correct myself next week if I'm wrong, but I think he basically was just a hobby and exercise that he did on the side uh, for like 10 years and eventually published it and, and it was a masterpiece. I mean, it's perfect. So I'm not saying it can't happen, but, but why risk it? Just like test the waters. I'm not anti-risk, but I'm not super risk either. And I've, I've launched enough apps and written enough things and I've had enough big ish or big enough ish projects just launch to crickets that I'm never doing that again. Like launching to crickets is the worst. It, it is. There's, it doesn't feel good. And I mean, I just look and say, this is the anatomy of a bestseller is you, you get the idea, you figure out who your audience is, figure out your point of view on this area that you've become an expert in. You deliver the right content that's designed around your audience and that's organic. It changes. You work on building the email list because you're giving them all this good stuff. And then if you want to write a book, you know what to write about and you've got a built in audience to get you started. Why would you want to write a book otherwise? Yeah, great point. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess if you just want to write a book to say you had a book, but that, that feels like somebody I spoke to once who had, had sold five copies of a book and was just going to go write another one. <laughs> I mean, it's like, really? <laughs> okay. <laughs> if that's how you enjoy spending your time, who am I to tell you not to do it? But if, if you want to get people to read it and you want to sell copies, then you have to do it differently. And we should probably refer people to the episode, um, should you write a book that we did? I don't have the number off the top of my head, but there are different reasons to want to write a book. One is to amplify your message, get it out in the world. Another is to make money off of it. Just straight up, it's a cash play. Uh, another is to use as a 300 page business card. So there are all these different reasons, but I think this, this episode for me is really about that spreading the message version of it where all of these things, like you said, this list of six points is perfect for that kind of a book. When you've got a message that you really feel this driving desire to get out there into the world to hopefully help people change change the culture, change the narrative, make an impact, that kind of a book, this is the way to do it, in my opinion. Yeah, it's an authority book. You're building your authority by helping your audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Excellent. Ah, <laughs> ah, ah, ah. <laughs> I feel like I should do my wicked witch laugh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it'll be after Halloween by the time this is published, but it's coming up for us still. Yes. All right, folks, that's probably a good place to leave it. I think so. Great. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next time for the Business of Authority. Bye. Bye-bye.